Welcome to Febrile, a culture podcast about all things infectious disease. We use consult questions to dive into ID clinical reasoning, diagnostics, and antimicrobial management. I am Sarah Dong. I'm your host and a combined adult and pediatric ID fellow. Here on Febrile, we use patient cases and consult questions to learn about high-yield ID topics. I'll present pieces of a story of a patient's case and we'll pause along the way to hear from our guest consultant. I have our usual disclaimer that all presented patients on this podcast are inspired by patient experiences, but cases are constructed or significantly altered and de-identified for learning purposes. So welcome to episode two of our Febrile HIV summer series called Fresh Start. This collection of episodes is going to cover a few HIV topics in a variety of settings. Our first one was an adult patient. Uh, We'll have an episode on a patient who is pregnant in pediatrics, as well as today's, which is on PrEP or pre-exposure prophylaxis. We have an absolutely amazing episode written by my awesome co-fellow, Dr. Elise Merchant. Uh, She's graduating from ID fellowship at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center this summer, and will be starting on faculty at Tufts University, both here in Boston. I'll now introduce our guest today, Dr. Meredith Clement. Meredith joined the Louisiana State University, or LSU, faculty in 2018, following the completion of her internal medicine and infectious disease training at Duke University. Her academic interests lie in the prevention of HIV and sexually transmitted infections in vulnerable populations, including racial, ethnic, and gender minority populations in the South. She has a particular interest on how to reduce the burden of HIV infection by maximizing the impact of PrEP. She has been involved in PrEP-related research since 2014 and is currently studying the intersection of STIs and PrEP use through a NIAID K23 Career Development Award. Hey, Meredith, thanks for joining us. So happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Um, As everyone's favorite cultured podcast, I like to ask about a little piece of culture that brings you joy. Uh, yeah, so um, I'll just start I, so I, by saying I live here in New Orleans, which I think some people would say is one of the most cultured cities in the world. We have influence of many different cultures. And so that um, is so exciting, music and food and uh, art and, and everything that just makes New Orleans, New Orleans such a unique and special place to live. And so I do love the diversity here and the food here and maybe not the weather always, but but pretty much everything else. That's fair. I'm from the South and everyone asks me if I miss how hot it is. I say, no, I don't. Right, exactly. Uh, Well, that's not true. I don't miss the humidity. Yeah, especially this time of year going into these next few months. Um, But come January, you know, when it's snowing in Boston... You might wish you were here. So Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, we're so glad you're here today. We actually are going to follow a patient who has a couple different questions. And we've done other episodes like this um, where we're kind of following the same patient over time. And so I don't necessarily have like one specific consult question. It'll kind of be as we go. Okay. Um, so I'll kind of jump right in. Our patient is a 25-year-old cisgender man who was referred to ID clinic for a painless genital ulcer, which he first noticed a week ago. He has no other symptoms, no medications or allergies, and for medical history, he's had several STIs in the past five years. 
Most recently, gonorrhea two years ago, which was treated appropriately at the time with ceftriaxone, 250 milligrams IM and azithromycin one gram orally. Although like we discussed in episode five with Anu, the CDC recommendations have changed and we now would treat this patient with ceftriaxone only with the higher 500 milligrams IM dose. And so you take a sensitive and thorough sexual history. We talked a little bit about sexual history taking skills in that episode as well. Um, He is currently in a thruple. He has two regular long-term sexual partners, one cisgender man and one cisgender woman. He and his partners have an open sexual relationship. And about one to two times a month, he has sex with new partners that he meets over the internet or in clubs. Um, These partners are cisgender and transgender men and women. His most recent new sexual partner was a cisgender woman about four weeks ago. He practices both receptive and insertive oral and anal sex, as well as insertive vaginal sex, and he only uses condoms some of the time. And so we talked a little bit about the workup of genital ulcers in that episode as well. And you suspect that this painless ulcer is a syphilitic chancre, and you order a syphilis test, which does eventually return positive. But you don't wait for this result, and he is treated with IM benzathine penicillin G. Is there anything else that we can do today to help this patient? Yeah. So it does sound like you guys have already discussed in a prior episode taking a a thorough sexual history, but I just can't help myself and I have to re-emphasize this point. So this is just one of the most important things we can do for our patients. Um, One of the attendings I worked with way back in the day just always said, you know, it's a disservice to the patient to not take a sexual history. And that's kind of stuck with me. It's like, you think it's uncomfortable for them. You feel like it's uncomfortable for you, but it's really not good medical medical care to not take a good sexual history. And sometimes that's easier than others. So if, if for example, this patient is coming in with a genital ulcer and like a sexual health type complaint, then he's probably expecting to go into some of the information about his sexual activity. Uh, I think in primary care clinics, this can be a little harder when patients are coming in with other needs and it, it feels m- more maybe random to start talking about sexual history, but nonetheless still important. And so kudos to you for for gathering this um, thorough sexual history. And so I just want to summarize, this is a 25-year-old cisgender man uh, who has both cisgender and transgender male and female partners of unknown status. Uh, He reports inconsistent condom use. Uh, He has a a more distant history of gonorrhea, but now is coming in with what seems to be primary syphilis. Uh, So what I would like to do is explore sexual health a little bit more. So I'd like to offer him gonorrhea and chlamydia testing today as well. So I would offer what we call three-site or triple-site screening. Uh, We did get a history of anal sex, oral sex, and so I would insert of receptive. And so I would do kind of urinary urethral specimen testing, also rectal testing and oropharyngeal testing uh, to make up those, those three sites. And I would offer him the opportunity to collect uh, the rectal and oropharyngeal specimens himself it, because we know that those are tend to be reliable samples. And so uh, we, we would offer, uh, self, I would offer self-collection. And then I would move into a conversation about HIV risk. I would ask the patient if he he is aware of PrEP, if he knows about PrEP, if he has any interest in starting PrEP today. Yeah. 
And so we sent off the other tests that you mentioned, and those have come back negative. Um, but when you bring up HIV, the patient tells you he is worried about it. Um, he's had a long-term partner that one of the long-term partners was recently diagnosed with HIV and started on ART. And his partner's doing well, um, but it was just a very scary experience for all of them and not kind of what they were expecting. And so he has consistently been using condoms with this partner since the diagnosis. Um, and he has been too scared to get tested himself till now. And that he actually kind of, that was part of his motivation for coming in as well was to sort of follow up on that. And he's very relieved to hear that his test is negative. So he asks you how worried he should be about getting HIV and if there's anything he should do to prevent it. And so you sort of started that conversation with PrEP. Um, and before his partner got the diagnosis, he had not really worried about HIV because he thought HIV is not really a problem anymore. And so I wanted to see if you could talk to us about who is at risk for HIV infection and how you think about risk stratification in an individual like this who comes to see you to clinic. I will say, I, I think it's interesting that he, he mentioned he didn't think HIV was a problem anymore. Um, and to me, that's actually good to hear uh, because I think it's because of these amazing advances in science um, that the general public is just not as concerned about HIV anymore. We have, you know, patients who live very often live long, healthy lives. And, and so his thought process may have been a little naive, but it's actually, I think it's an exciting thing to hear people say. But that said, in the United States, we do continue to see thousands of new infections. So uh, it looks like the most recent data that has just come out is, is almost 35,000 new infections in 2019 or, or new diagnoses in the United States. And then still we have around 1.5 to 2 million new cases worldwide each year. So currently, as, as some of these list, some of your listeners may know, uh, it's a huge priority for the U.S. to try to quote unquote, in the HIV epidemic. That's a big initiative that's coming down from the federal level. There are a number of priority jurisdictions where the focus is on ending the HIV epidemic um, because of the HIV incidents in those so-called hotspots. So for example, again, I live in New Orleans, in Louisiana. It's one of the priority jurisdictions along with a number of other cities in the Southeast. And so kind of talking about uh, who's at risk, one of the biggest risk factors is, is actually geography. And so, you know, we open the conversation, you're from the South, I'm from the South. Um, as much as we kind of hate to see the burden of infections being in the South, it sometimes makes conversations with patients like this a little bit easier um, because I, I can actually tell patients, you know, we live in a hot spot. We live in a place with a, a high rate of new infections and just a high baseline prevalence. So just essentially anyone who lives here and has sex here is at elevated risk of HIV infection. And so that that's sometimes a nice conversation to have because it it sort of externalizes it. It takes the emphasis off the individual and their individual risk factors, and it, it, it kind of places it on the community um, in which we live. But so it's it's not just geography, uh, as we know, um, and there are certain other risk factors, largest of which is, is men who have sex with men are at elevated risk in the United States. Most diagnoses still are occurring in men who have sex with men. Uh, people who inject drugs are also at elevated risk. So 5 to 10% of new infections each year 
are occurring in people who inject drugs. And then unfortunately, what we tend to see in the United States is a huge racial disparity. Um, so again, kind of bringing the conversation back to the South, but the more majority of new infections are in Black and Latino or Latinx individuals. And then when you think about heterosexual cisgender women here, who I personally just have a number of uh, women who live with HIV in, in my clinic, um, the majority of whom are Black, that kind of is representative of what the overall epidemic in the South looks like um, among heterosexual cisgender women. So it's an unfortunate, unfortunate racial disparity or inequity that we continue to see, um, but that I think a lot of effort is going to try to resolve and, and make things more equitable as we try to eliminate HIV as a whole. Yeah. And so the USPSTF, or United States Preventative Services Task Force, which is mouthful, and the CDC also have guidance on considering an individual patient's history and behaviors to help assess their risk level. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I tend to use CDC guidelines. Um, yeah. As some of the listeners may know, the draft of the newest guidelines was released recently, but kind of the, the one that, the set of guidelines that most people are, are using still currently is the 2017 guidelines. So men who have sex with men who have a recent history of anal sex uh, without a condom in the past six months or any bacterial STI so that would include chlamydia, gonorrhea, or syphilis in the past six months are considered to be at elevated risk and, and recommended for PrEP. And then when it comes to heterosexual men and women, the the risk factors that they list are, are pretty similar. But if also if they have an HIV positive partner, the bacterial STIs are limited to, to gonorrhea or syphilis, but not chlamydia. Um, and then also if they have condomless sex with partners at elevated risk of HIV infection. And so going back to our patient, this particular patient, it's, it sounds like he has multiple risk factors. He has anal sex. He has multiple partners um, with unknown status. So I, I would offer him PrEP. But the first thing, we do want to make sure he's a candidate. So we would want to do testing to ensure he's HIV negative, which it sounds like he's had and he is HIV negative. Uh, we would want to test his renal function and then just talk about any other medications that he might be on that might interact with PrEP. All right. So we offer PrEP to our patient who is interested um, although he would like to hear a little bit more before he commits. He doesn't like taking medications, and he really wants to be sure that this is helpful and effective before he starts taking the medication. I think, first of all, it's what we do uh, for our patients, especially when it comes to prevention, is based on their preferences. So one thing I tell my patients a lot is, you know, your body, your choices, and they can make the choice for themselves. I just like to have, for them to have all the appropriate information and front of them so that they can make educated choices. It's the same, I'm sure, you know, with COVID vaccine or other vaccines or other prevention strategies. We just, we want to tell them the risks and benefits and we want them to be able to make an educated decision. So at, at this point, we're actually working with more than a decade's worth of data on PrEP safety and efficacy. So going back, I'm sure some of your listeners are aware of uh, the IPREX study that came out in New England Journal. That was 2010 that it was published. And since then, we've seen a number of real-world studies, IPREX being in cisgender men who have sex with men and transgender women, to show PrEP. Uh, and, and when I say PrEP here, I mean 
TANOF of your disoproxyl fumarate with emtricitabine, and that's I'll, I'll probably refer to that as TDF-FTC for the remainder so that I don't have that mouthful each time. Um, <laughs> but so TDF-FTC efficacy for HIV prevention in, in cisgender men who have sex with men and transgender women, but also the partners prep in heterosexual men and women. We had the Bangkok TANOF of your study for uh, TANOF of your disoproxyl fumarate uh, monotherapy in people who inject drugs. Uh, and those are some of the earliest large randomized clinical trials. But then since then, the PROUD study that came out in the UK, uh, the PrEP demos project in the US. I mean, I, I remember as a fellow back in either 2015 or 2016, kind of presenting all of these in, in grand rounds. And, you know, so we've had this data for a long time and we've only built upon this data. And so just kind of offering him reassurance that we have experience. Um, we know that these TDF, FTC, is, is safe and, and that it's upwards of 90%. And I think in, in some cases we could say as high as 99% uh, effective if, if you look really closely at, at who's adherent to PrEP in these studies, um, but it very effective at preventing HIV infection. So I, I would just offer reassurance that this medication is safe and effective and it's a sensible thing to do for anyone who's at elevated risk. Yeah. And then what are sort of your counseling points you want to cover when talking about safety and adverse effects from taking um, prep? Yeah. So um, with TDF-FTC, I do tend to counsel patients on a small effect on renal function. Um, so, so talking about uh, minor renal side effects and then bone mineral density loss, which is shown to be reversible when people stop TDF-FTC. And, and so actually... The IAS USA guidelines would suggest that we use TDF-FTC unless patients have a creatinine clearance in that 30 to 60 range, so less than 60, or they have a history of osteopenia or osteoporosis. But in other cases, I think TDF-FTC is, is really to be considered safe and with kind of minimal side effect profile. And we can talk more about TAF uh, FTC as well. Yeah. Before we jump to those those regimens, your patient does ask one last question saying, you know, I definitely want to take PrEP. Is there any chance there is an option where I don't have to take a pill every day? And are there any other alternatives that you talk about with your patients? Sure. So one thing that comes to mind is on-demand PrEP. Uh, and some people refer to this as the 211 regimen. So the data for on-demand PrEP comes from the Ypres study that uh, was conducted in, in France and Canada. Um, and actually at Croy this year, Dr. Molina from Paris reviewed the three-year data from Prevenir ANRS, which was also uh, looking at on-demand prep, and he showed it to be a safe and effective strategy. But but what this is, is this is two tablets, two to 24 hours uh, before sex, uh, one tablet 24 hours later, and another tablet 48 hours later. And so some health departments, in particular, I think San, Diego, uh, San Francisco and New York, 
are recommending or have on-demand prep within their guidelines. It looks like, so the CDC guidelines in 2017 did not recommend on-demand prep, but it looks like that will probably change in the new draft of the, or the new form of the guidelines that that so far has only been um, released in draft form, uh, but that is likely to change. And so, you know, different providers are taking different approaches at this time in terms of recommending that or not. But I think uh, the tide's turning and, and with the new CDC guidelines, I think more providers will buy in for this for, for folks who don't want to take uh, daily TDF FTC. And I, I will mention that on, on-demand prep really has only been studied in TDF FTC at this point. And then uh, the other thing I will mention as far as um, avoiding a daily pill uh, is long-acting long injectable cabotegravir. And so in 2020, uh, the 083 HIV Prevention Trials Network, or HPTN 083, uh, was actually stopped early by the Data Safety Monitoring Board when there were shown to be fewer infections in the cabotegravir arm relative to the TDF-FTC arm. So that was really exciting. Uh, the results have uh, been presented by uh, Dr. Rafi Landovitz at Virtual AIDS 2020 last year. And our hope is that the regimen may actually get FDA approval by the end of uh, the 2021 calendar year. Because subsequent to the release of the 083 results, the cis, and, and I should say 083 was cisgender men who have sex with men and transgender women at 43 sites worldwide. The sister study, which was um, looking at the same head-to-head long-acting injectable cabotegravir versus TDF-FTC in a double dummy type study was conducted in cisgender women in sub-Saharan Africa and and similar results. Um, Long-acting cabotegravir was shown to be superior to TDF-FTC. And so I think this is really exciting for, uh, you know, for us who who kind of live in this world, we often struggle to get patients on PrEP we are true believers and advocates and we think it's the right thing, um, but we have patients who are hesitant. And and so, so it's exciting because it eliminates the need for a daily pill, but it's also just another tool in the toolbox to prevent HIV infection. So similar to, and, and people make this comparison all the time, but it's so true, similar to contraception options for women, the more options you have, the more people will buy in and start using them. And so um, long-acting cabotegravir, again, hopefully FDA approved and commercially available uh, by the end of this year. But but the data that's come out of these large randomized clinical trials so far has been really exciting in, in, in my personal opinion. And so your patient is like, that's really cool. But you know what? I, I'll stick with sort of the FDA-approved regimens for now. Um, and so he actually had um, looked up a little bit and was worried about the renal effects of TDF-FTC and did mention that he has heard about advertisements and, and things that he's read on the internet talking about the, quote, newer and safer PrEP. Um, and he's wondering about if he should be on that drug instead of a different one. So I thought here we can talk about the actual medications, um, thinking about TAF-FTC and um, 
uh, TDF, FTC, and, and any other sort of things that you can highlight? Sure. So I think, yes, what he's probably referring to is half FTC. <laughs> uh, it was studied uh, head-to-head against TDF, FTC, in the Discover trial. FTAF or TAF, FTC, is a newer drug. It leads to higher intracellular concentrations of tenofovir diphosphate, but the consequence of that is it's lower plasma levels. Um, So you tend uh, to see less of the positive effects and more of the negative effects of uh, tenofovir itself. And so in the Discover study, it was looking at the safety and efficacy of TAF-FTC in in 5,000 men who have sex with men and transgender women versus TDF-FTC. And it it was shown, TAF-FTC was shown to be non-inferior to TDF-FTC. And I guess the other endpoints that I, I can mention is that the biomarkers of renal safety were better with TAF FTC. But that said, both regimens were shown to be very safe, and there were very few renal discontinuation events in either arm. And the change from baseline in those who were taking TDF FTC was only four mils per minute in GFR. And so that's that's pretty negligible change, to be honest. And there, there was one Fanconi's. At the end of the day, we can still say that TDF-FTC is, is very safe relative to TAF-FTC. And, and the kind of flip side of the coin, I mentioned that you see fewer of the positive effects of tenofovir itself. But in the Discover study, those in the, the TAF-FTC arm did gain, I, I believe it was 1.1 kilograms, so two to three pounds over the course of the study. And, and there was less kind of of that favorable lipid profile effect that we see as a result of TDF-FTC, so high, higher LDLs. You know, and so I think, again, it's a conversation with your patient in front of you about what's acceptable and what's not. And, and at the end of the day, I don't know that any of these changes are kind of make it or break it. But one thing we are trying to consider as providers is, is cost. And now that TDF-FTC has gone generic, it, it's some insurance companies are requiring it, uh, first of all. But second of all, it just seems like a more sensible option um, when, when we think about kind of the crisis in, in costs uh, of the U.S. healthcare system. So our patient actually is interested in starting as soon as he can. When do you think is the right time to start him on PrEP? So that's, uh, I think, variable or dependent on on his preferences or the preferences of the provider. But I will say that lots of clinics now, and, and I fully endorse this approach, are starting same-day PrEP. So in back in 2019, I believe, there was an abstract at Croy from the New York City uh, Sexual Health Clinic where they started patients on immediate PrEP. If they didn't have a history of kidney disease or hepatitis B, they had no signs of acute HIV infection. And I will say they all had negative rapid tests. So that's important. You absolutely want to have a rapid test on the day you start that's shown to be negative. 
if they met all those criteria, they were started immediately. And there were actually only four of the patients out of the almost 1,400 who started immediate PrEP um, who had to be stopped when labs resulted, uh, two because they had positive HIV tests and two because they had uh, creatinine clearance or GFR that was less than 60 mLs per minute. And so I, I think that data was was really exciting. And, and since then, a lot of clinics around the country or, or maybe honestly, simultaneously with, with how the New York City system was doing it, we're, we're prescribing or starting same-day prep. And so Denver has published on their findings. Uh, San Diego has published on their findings. Chicago and St. Louis are doing this. We're actually, our, one of our prep clinics here in New Orleans uh, starts same-day prep, and we're, we're, try, we're in the process of getting a same-day prep clinic started in our sexual health center currently. So I, I think it's or, or if you can determine that the patient has a, a, a negative rapid test, no signs or symptoms of acute HIV infection, then I think it could be justified or warranted um, to go ahead and start same-day prep. Some clinics have an ISAT machine and they can get a creatinine that day. Uh, some clinics are just prescribing immediately uh, just if the patient has no risk factors for kidney disease. So all in all, I think it's an exciting strategy to encourage uptake because we know from multiple studies that when clients or patients are referred out for PrEP services or there's a delay, there is a drop-off in those who actually ultimately end up initiating PrEP. So our patient is actually interested in starting right away and now wants to know how soon he will have protection against HIV. Sure. So for cisgender men who have sex with men, like this particular patient, the IAS USA panel, so that's, I think I I said that acronym before without uh, adequately defining (laughs) it, but that's International Antiviral Society USA panel recommendations from 2020 are that we, and and this is also, I believe the WHO recommendation um, is that we start with an initial double dose, two tablets of TDF FTC followed by once daily dosing later. And, and so I, I think this data is sort of coming from the on-demand strategy too, but you can reach effective levels uh, within 24 hours for anal sex. Previously, we didn't necessarily recommend an initial double dose. Um, and we told patients for anal sex, it would take seven days to achieve protection. And for those who have receptive vaginal sex, it would take around 20 to 21 days. And that's just because we've studied the the tissue levels in in cervicovaginal tissues and rectal tissues, and and it just takes that long to achieve sort of this maximum um, protective level. Okay. And so we start our patient on PrEP with an initial double dose. When would you like to see him back in clinic? Yeah. So I think different clinics have different approaches. And, And some of this is based on clinic capacity and ancillary services. So um, at different clinics I've worked at in the past, we did a one-week phone call from a nurse or a navigator just to check in. Is the patient adhering? Were they able to get their medication okay? Are they adhering to treatment? Are they having any side effects? And then a lot of clinics will bring a patient back in 
three to four weeks later for labs just to make sure everything looks fine. According to guidelines, there's still a recommendation that uh, patients be seen every three months. Uh, We do, I think most providers want to see that negative HIV test every three months. I I will say a lot of this has changed with respect to COVID uh, because the in-person visits have been less doable. And so whether it's a phone call or a telehealth uh, video visit at three months and then bring the patient in separately for labs or an in-person visit um, or, you know, sometimes a little later than three months, but labs earlier, you know, I think things have just gotten a little more relaxed during during the pandemic and, and really out of necessity. Um, but still, I do think that most providers like to see that negative HIV test every three months. And then the, the renal function actually under the new guidelines, it, it looks like this may change, uh, get spaced out to, unless, unless there are risk factors for kidney disease related to either baseline creatinine clearance or age, creatinine checks will probably get spaced out from every six months to every 12 months. And then depending on the patient and their risk factors, we also like to get STD testing, STI testing every three to six months. Yeah. And so our patient has been coming in about every three months for his appointments. He had a couple telehealth along the way with COVID and everything else that happened. And so he does well on TDF-FTC for about a year, but then he stopped showing up for appointments. It looks like when you check his pharmacy dispense records that he has not been filling his prescriptions and you haven't been able to get a hold of him. And so about six months later, he comes back to clinic. He has unfortunately lost his job, is now experiencing homelessness. He no longer has current sexual partners, but he has started injecting heroin. And so he tries to use new needles when he can, but does definitely sometimes share needles with friends. And so he stopped taking his prep because he thought, I'm not having sex with anyone. I'm not really at risk for HIV. And so how would you counsel him here about prep? So sadly, I think we're seeing a lot of these sorts of situations. Um, and it's been a big problem with COVID. We've seen or are expecting to see data um, showing large increases in injection drug use. Um, certainly, kind of anecdotally, my colleagues and I um, have seen this in our hospitals and our clinics um, is this rise in injection drug use uh, over the past year. And so there is counseling that can be done here. First, the the patient certainly is still a candidate for PrEP just because of injection drug use. So anyone who shares equipment would be a candidate for PrEP. And And then he reports no sexual activity but what we have found is that among people who inject drugs, they often have sexual risk factors for PrEP. And whether that's transactional sex um, or multiple partners, condomless sex, et cetera, um, they, they still would meet criteria just based on sexual activity alone, um, whether or not they're sharing equipment and needles. And so for this patient, I think it's also an opportunity to refer to opioid substitution therapy if that's not being done by you or your clinic. 
and counsel about how life-changing that can be and how it can just lead to a, a number of different positive outcomes for someone who is injecting heroin. And then also make sure he's aware of, of safe syringe programs in the area um, so that he can get access to clean equipment. Happily, you are able to get him reengaged into care. Um, I think it helped a lot because the relationship that he had with the clinic. And so he is started on Suboxone and does restart his prep around the same time and actually is able to achieve recovery for his opioid use disorder. Um, and then slowly over time reacquires housing and is able to get a job. And so he comes into his quarterly visits now And at a follow-up visit later, we're moving into the future now, about a year or so later, he shares that he has reconnected and is back together with one of the prior partners that we talked about earlier, the, uh, the partner who was living with HIV. So the two of them are actually engaged to be married and plan on remaining mutually monogamous. And his partner, as an update, has been on um, Bictarvi since his diagnosis, has had a suppressed viral load since starting ART. And so our patient is wondering if he still needs to take PrEP at this point. We had talked about some of the amazing advances in in the science of HIV prevention uh, and treatment over the last few decades. And, and one of those incredible advances is treatment as prevention, um, or what the message that goes along with that, we, we say U equals U, undetectable equals untransmissible. And so I think it's so important to, to counsel all patients, those living with HIV, those at risk for HIV, those considering PrEP, um, about treatment as prevention or, or U equals U. And, and this comes from a number of studies, but the kind of landmark study was HPTN 052, um, where it was demonstrated that that people who are living with HIV who are taking their medication and achieve viral suppression are not capable of sexually transmitting HIV to their partners. Um, And and then the partner study and a number of studies that followed uh, showed exactly the same thing, zero transmissions in the setting of treatment and and viral suppression. Um, And so this is, again, just one of the very exciting things about HIV treatment and prevention. And so if he is truly, you know, monogamous with his partner and doesn't feel like he wants to continue on PrEP, I think that's a perfectly reasonable decision. I do think it's worth counseling, you know, that uh, it, it may be worth it if he's having partners outside of his sexual relationship or if he or if there's any doubt that his partner is fully adherent to his Bictarvi or his, his antiretroviral um, treatment. Because in those cases, um, it, it probably is worth it to continue taking PrEP. So again, just a conversation with the patient, kind of a, a risk-benefit assessment, um, and, and really based, I think, on his preferences of what um, makes sense given his situation. Great. And so after some consideration, he is excited and has decided to stop taking prep. And so he thanks you for all your help over the years. Um, I like to end though, just by asking if there's anything else that you wanted to emphasize before we wrap up the show. Yeah. Well, one thing I I was going to mention after the cabotegravir that's probably worth talking about just for a second, because we focused so much on this patient who is a man who has sex with men, but as we mentioned, certainly cisgender women 
um, are at risk of HIV infection too. Um, you know, more so in, in certain parts of the world, but, but also in certain parts of the United States. Um, and so uh, just briefly talking about a couple of other strategies, um, but one that, that's geared towards cisgender women, which is the vaginal ring. So the depivirine vaginal ring has been studied now for a number of years. I think the earliest studies showing efficacy were published in 2016, but as a safe and effective strategy uh, for HIV prevention that, again, may just be more appealing to, to certain patients um, and would allow them to use PrEP when they otherwise wouldn't be interested in an, a pill or an injection. And so the depivirine ring has been approved in Europe so far. And, and now there's, there's more data from the open label extension studies, kind of like this 40 to 62% efficacy range. But the WHO did just release a recommendation for its use in January 2021. So that, uh, I think, is going to be a nice option for cisgender women. And, and one thing that's also cool about that strategy is that it's being studied um, kind of coupled with contraception. So some of, a lot of us are familiar with contraceptive rings. And so if you can kind of have these like so-called multi-purpose technologies that combine contraception with HIV prevention, that can really potentially be very game-changing for cisgender women. Um, the other uh, options that are uh, coming kind of in the pipeline, one is, is Latravir uh, that's currently being studied as a, a monthly pill, and then Lenacapavir, uh, which is a capsid inhibitor that's a subcutaneous injection that, that is being studied for PrEP with administration as one injection every six months. So those, those studies are just getting started. So it'll be a number of years before we have results, but it's just exciting to know that there are other strategies and other medications in the pipeline, because again, analogous to contraception, kind of the more strategies we have, I think the, the larger uh, amount of uptake we'll have. Thank you to Meredith for coming as our guest today and to Elise for writing this amazing prep tale for the ages. Elise has also created some awesome infographics that we'll have available on the website and the Twitter page. We still have two more episodes in the Fresh Start Summer series. You can check out more info on febrilepodcast.com and there you can find our consult notes that will have links to all the papers and abstracts that we mentioned today. You can also find or contact Febrile or myself on Twitter, Instagram, the website, or via email. Let me know if you have suggestions, topics, or just want to get involved. I'm so glad you could join today. Stay safe and I'll see you next time.